0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joha Show podcast today on the pod with fed-up doctors and healthcare practitioners organizing a protest this weekend. will Surrey finally got the healthcare funding residents are demanding. Plus, we look at whether BC is heading the way of Ontario as that province for the first time has international students outpace the Ontario government in funding colleges. How did we get into this mess? And our Friday rap panel debates whether AI-generated songs should be eligible for a Grammy. That's all next on the Jazz Joha Show podcast. This week, we spoke to Dr. Randeep Gill, who is organizing a rally with his fellow doctors and health uh, practitioners in Surrey for Saturday. Uh, Doctors uh, have been arguing that there is a double standard when it comes to funding healthcare south of the Fraser and that the region is suffering due to a lack of proactive planning and chronic underinvestment, especially in communities like Surrey. Now, earlier today, Health Minister Adrian Dix was meeting doctors and officials at Surrey Memorial Hospital to update them on uh, progress in addressing the challenges. He also spoke about the amount of British Columbians who are currently in emergency care. Uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix joins us now. Minister, thank you for speaking to us today.
1: Hey, great to be on the show, Jeff.
0: All right, well, let's talk first about Surrey. We'll get to the, uh, the emergency uh, room issue uh, after that. But first and foremost, Surrey. Now, uh, in May, uh, emergency room doctors first spoke out on the conditions at Surrey Memorial Hospital. And as you know, there is a rally planned uh, tomorrow. What in your mind or has anything changed at Surrey since those protests uh, in in May?
1: Well, as you know, and this really goes back a number of years, uh, there's been a very significant investment in healthcare in Surrey. Um, there was underinvestment in healthcare for uh, a decade before that, under the cost of healthcare inflation. And Surrey paid the greatest price because the population was rising. So not only were they losing uh, ground on their current patient population, but their future needs weren't being met. In that process, Uh, there had been a proposal for a second hospital in Surrey. That proposal, of course, led to the land being sold by the provincial government. And uh, that had serious consequences for Surrey. So we're planning a second hospital in Surrey. There'll be more uh, news about that next week. And that planning has taken a while. You have to find the land and do that. But all of that process is underway. Equally, Surrey did, and doctors in Surrey did an extraordinary job in, under really challenging circumstances in the pandemic, it, it's some of the best work in healthcare, I think, in the world. Uh, the doctors that are working in Surrey, but coming out of that, we've seen an absolute surge in patients as we've gone through this fourth year since the COVID-19 pandemic. An absolute surge in patients, and that surge is felt most in the community with the fastest-growing population, that is Surrey. In June, we we uh, working together with doctors and nurses and healthcare workers in Surrey. Health sciences professionals. We um, we laid out 30 actions we were going to take to help address the situation at Surrey Memorial Hospital. There's been on each of those 30 points, there's been action. What do they include? A long-standing issue for cardiac uh, care doctors and nurses and everyone else in the community was a need for a cardiac catheterization lab in Surrey, and we are uh, making significant progress on that. That has been going on since that point, we're looking to have one in place in 18 months. Interventional radiology, improvements there. Improvements in maternity, improvements in the emergency room, improvements in renal care, which is an area that doesn't get as high a profile but is critically important in a community that has a growing chronic illness problem and has some real vulnerabilities of citizens. So we t- we announced 30 actions. There have been um, follow-through on each of those actions and today I was meeting with doctors to um, to talk about what we were doing, how the progress was, how they were seeing that progress. In general, that was positive, although let's be clear, it is an immense challenge still in our healthcare system with really a very significant and growing patient population. And, uh, and so it is not an easy time for health professionals in Syria or anywhere else.
0: Now, you were mentioning chronic underinvestment uh, under the, uh, I'm assuming, previous government, the BC Liberals. Uh, I do believe there was a significant expansion of the Surrey Memorial Hospital during their time. I believe there was a new hospital in Abbotsford uh, during their time. I'm not saying that's just going to, is responding to all of it, but one would argue the significant population increase. You're absolutely right. Uh, when you look, compare it to Vancouver with the Vancouver Hospital, St. Paul's, you have a women's hospital, children's hospital, uh, the south of the Fraser, not just Surrey, but Delta, Abbotsford, Langley, Chilliwack. There's generally been, one would argue, chronic underinvestment. Specifically, with the significant increase in population that we're seeing seeing now, how do you turn that around without literally billions of dollars being spent? I mean, you would need well, a significant well,
1: well, well, Je- Je- dollars spent. Of all, first of all, billions of dollars will be spent, right? I mean, with the, in the case of Surrey, we're we're doing the most significant increase in hospital capital projects in the province's history right now, in every part of the province. There are massive projects. We can talk about that perhaps at another time. Mm-hmm. But we're building a second a second hospital in Surrey because, well, children's and women's are provincial hospitals, and they're situated in Vancouver. And if we were building them today, given where children the ch- population of children were growing, we wouldn't be building them in Vancouver. We'd be building them in Surrey, but they're there now. Right. Mm -hmm. And other projects like St. Paul's have been waiting a long time in their replacement projects. The only fully new project in British Columbia is in Surrey. And uh, that will be the second Surrey hospital. And uh, people in Surrey have waited a long time for that project. And uh, and they took action. We talked about where we were. I mean, on diagnostic uh, procedures, Surrey was so far below the national average. It was an embarrassment. In 2017, it was an embarrassment to the community. We've gone from 170,000 MRIs in DC in 2017 to 300,000. Where have they grown most? Surrey, because they were in the north and in Surrey the least supported. So we've added MRI machines, operating our NR- MRI machines much more frequently. That's a real example of where Surrey lost out. Surrey, in terms of seniors care and seniors housing, has typically been a younger community, the youngest in B.C., but that's changing. If you look at the next 14 years, uh, Jazz, through the 2037-38, there's going to be a 240% increase in people over 80 in Surrey and a 19% of people under 19 increase. A lot under 19, there's still significant demands there, but it is breathtaking, the increase in the number of older people in Surrey because and they're not becoming an older community they're returning to the provincial average in terms of population so we've got to respond with long-term care you talked about what the previous government did 10 years 10 years of spending Oh, seven 7 to 17 they spent 17 million dollars 17.7 to be fair in 10 years that's 1.77 a year right we're spending more than 2 billion that 2 billion of course will have less effect because we got to make up for 10 years of what has to be described as negligence in an aging with a province with an aging population in that And that's a particular issue in Surrey, because Surrey in the past has been a younger community that is gonna to, going to have its share and more of elderly people in the coming decades.
0: Let's touch on the broader issue, uh, of course, and right, right now that's emergency care in British Columbia. Generally, this is uh, a low point in the sense of amount of people who are in emergency care. It's not the flu season. But this year, for some reason, there are a lot more people using emergency care. Uh, do you have the numbers for that? Number two, why is that happening in your mind?
1: Well, uh, two sets of things. So we're talking about acute care. So this is these are people who are sick enough, right, to be admitted to an acute care hospital, you've got to be pretty sick for that to be the case, yeah. right? I mean, uh, to be an ad- admitted patient. Typically, this kind of time of year, we'd expect an overall patient census of around nine thousand, nine thousand one hundred, nine thousand two hundred. 9,200, right? That's what we'd expect. What we have today is 9,700. Through the summer, that patient population stayed high. In other words, we had respiratory illness levels of people in our hospitals during the summer period, when there's typically fewer people in our hospitals, right? Mm -hmm. And what happened, if you want to know when the numbers spiked, they spiked uh, as we ended the COVID year 2022. um, We went into respiratory illness season, but the number of people in the hospital was growing at that time, and it just continued to stay high and grow, even as we went through respiratory illness season. So it peaked out at about 10,280 last January, but it has stayed high, right? And so, essentially, that is a challenge. So, in our our healthcare system is doing more surgeries by far. August was a record August by far for surgeries in B.C. Record diagnostics, record number of people in the hospital, record primary care visits. But the demand is such that it feels like, uh, so our healthcare professionals' productivity and the delivery of the system for the money we spend on the system has been higher than ever. But the demand is so high that people feel legitimately you talk to people in the system a sense of um of sort of daily constant crisis and challenge
0: so in this case there are currently about 9700 people in bc or in emergency care about 700 more than similar times in the past Um, we're not at the fall slash winter flu season yet i mean how concerned are you uh, and how much more space or you know slack do you have within the system to deal with this well,
1: we, of course, um, last year, this is an example, it went up to about almost 10,300, right? Um, and that's a huge number. And so we took, as you'll remember, last year, I think, uh, made an announcement in January, how we were going to mitigate that in the short run. So we have a plan that we're putting in place for this uh, acute care season, because we're talking about acute people in acute care. This isn't just people going into the emergency room, mm-hmm. visiting. this is the people who are actually admitted patients. And so we have a plan to prepare for that. Uh, and we do every flu season. The difference this year, and the reason why I think healthcare doctors and nurses and others are feeling so much strain is typically those months where you're not busy. Uh, it's not restful, it's never restful. We're 24 7, 365, our healthcare system, right? But uh, at least there's a slight break. And this year, there is no break. There is just no break for anybody in the healthcare system. And so our healthcare staff has just been working nonstop now for, well, all the years of pandemic and all the things we're facing. So it is a challenge, and we're preparing for that challenge, absolutely, uh, for this fall. And you'll see and what it will require of us, amongst other things. As people, what can we do? Well, we need to, as we announced the vaccination plan mm-hmm. for the fall, people need to get vaccinated against COVID-19 again, and they have to do it vaccinated against the flu in our excellent flu vaccination campaign last year. I mean, excellent because of what people did, staff, but also the people choosing to get vaccinated, whether they be adults or children made a real difference in that. So we need um, those vaccination campaigns to be successful. We'll obviously have to prepare other actions as required and we got to prepare for the fall. We've had a plan in place that we've executed on the, all the years of COVID because in every year, it's been more difficult in the winter and every year before that. But with COVID, every year it's more difficult in the winter than it has been in the, in the, in the spring and summer. What we can also expect within healthcare facilities, and Dr. Henry is looking at this right now, mm-hmm. is the possibility of a return within healthcare of a mask requirement within healthcare. That makes a lot of sense. Um, we, you know, that mask requirement has not been in place. Um, in um, recent months, since April. But we're likely to see that, and Dr. Henry is considering that and looking at that issue right now in order to deal with um, uh, these issues of surge and re- respiratory illness.
0: Minister, thank you for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Hey, you too. Take care. Eh? Yesterday, we told you about a new report that shows international students from India are now paying more to Ontario colleges than the provincial government in that province, according to a new report. The report said that uh, the amount that students from India pay into Ontario's college system has been growing for years, but 2023-2024 was the first year that it topped government dollars. Now, while domestic students' tuition has often been been reduced or frozen, uh, international student fees have been steadily increasing. This new status quo leaves colleges far more reliant on tuition from international students to cover their annual operating bud- budgets. Now let me put that in context for all of you. This year, there are about nine hundred thousand international students in Canada. Ten years ago, that number stood at two hundred and twenty-five. So a significant increase in the amount of international students we're allowing into Canada. Ten years ago, foreign students brought in $8 billion into Canada because generally they pay double, sometimes triple the cost of what a domestic student would pay. So $8 billion is what foreign students brought into Canada ten years ago. Today, Ottawa estimates that could be up to 30 billion dollars. How do we become so reliant on international students? And is it the right thing uh, moving forward? Uh, joining me now is Barge Dahan. He's a director of the Canada India Education Society. He's worked in the Canada India corridor in education when it comes to nursing, healthcare, and trade, and policy as well. Barge, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Josh. So the numbers I've just read off, uh, and I know yesterday we focused quite a bit on Ontario and what this means longer term. Walk me through, and you mentioned some of the numbers to me yesterday, but I want our audience to know, walk me through what you have seen
2: here in British Columbia in regards to the numbers. Well, the numbers are quite startling. What we have seen from 2010 onwards mm-hmm. is, is an uh, effort to privatize post-secondary education in British Columbia, in Ontario, and across the country. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking at today in British Columbia is there are 277 designated learning institutions. That means they can enroll international students. But only about 26 of those are publicly funded institutions like our main universities and community colleges. Mm-hmm. So with that, what's happening is more and more international students are being recruited mm-hmm. into the private institutions as well as into the public And in British Columbia, my estimate is that international students are bringing in about $4 billion into the BC economy. That's tuition fees and housing costs.
0: Tuition fees and housing costs. Okay, so walk me through one of our colleges. Uh, Give me some numbers for one of our colleges.
2: Right, so let's talk UBC, which is the largest university Mm -hmm. in British Columbia with about 73,000 students in both of its campuses. Right now, it has about 27% of its students that are international. But the interesting thing is, out of those 20, uh, 27%, which is about 20,000, there's less than 2,000 students from India. Hmm. And then let's look at Kwantlen College, uh, sorry, uh, Kwantlen Polytechnic University. Mm-hmm. They have about 20-some-odd uh, some students, and 37% of them are international. Thirty-seven percent out of about twenty thousand. Yeah, are okay. international. Yeah, and those thirty-seven percent account for seventy-eight percent of all the tuition fees. So, the, what the for, uh, international students contribute in tuition fees to Kwantlen is hundred and forty-five percent of what the province gives as a grant to Kwantlen.
0: So, the, those international students—those are international students—fund. Uh, Kwantlen at a higher Kwantlen. level than the provincial government. Our, exactly. local, our government, okay. Yes. Uh, do you have numbers for Langara? I'm just curious.
2: Uh, Lingera is interesting. Not all the institutions are, uh, publish all of these numbers, the demographics and tuition fee breakdown. Okay. But now Lingera College, in terms of uh, its, uh, its, its numbers, uh, just give me one second, has about 23,000 students. Yeah. 7,300 are international. Out of those 7,300... 4,003 are from India, predominantly from the state of Punjab.
0: Okay, 4,003. And, what would they pay in tuition, um, do you
2: think? I'm, I'm calculating if they pay an average of 20000 this is assuming they're full-time students okay. taking full course load, that would be close to $80 million to Langara. To Langera,
0: yes. and, and I'm going to assume the provincial government's funding would be in and
2: about the same. is, is about the same. But that's startling numbers. How did we get here in your mind? Well, we got into it because in British Columbia, going back to the early 2000s, the provincial government did not provide the funding levels to the universities and community colleges that they used to. So under the former premier, Christy Clark, in 2011, Mm -hmm. she announced that she wanted to double the international students in BC. Mm -hmm. And that number was achieved within three, four years. Since then, the provincial government has also approved a lot of private post-secondary institutions Mm -hmm. and they are getting a big chunk of the international students. They're not transparent. They have no public accountability. They don't tell you how many international students they have. They don't tell you what fees they're charging. Mm -hmm. In terms of the fee range, it's not three or four times the domestic student fees for international students. Mm. It's a range of anywhere from a low of three times to as high as 10 times of what the institutions are charging to international students.
0: What do you think needs to happen? I mean, we've talked about this a little bit in the past. We talked about this yesterday. They come here. Most of these schools do not have any uh, uh, student housing. So these students are uh, out in the free market looking for one-bedroom apartments, sometimes sharing four, five, or six of them living in a basement suite or, or a one-bedroom apartment, two-bedroom apartment, uh, that we're aware of. Do you, in your mind, think that we should be pulling back on this then in a significant way? Or do you think it's a question of just slowing it down a little bit? Or do you think this is just the wrong way to go and just this needs to come to an end?
2: I think nationally, we need to take a second look at the international education policy that the federal government has, the number of students they're bringing in. We also need to look at, at a provincial level, our whole post-secondary education and get a good handle on... um, what is the role of the uh, private institutions and the, and the publicly funded? What is the relationship between them? Mm-hmm. Now, the public institutions, there's about 26 of them in the province. They are public, therefore they're accountable. They provide actually a reasonable amount of data in terms of where the students are coming from and foreign fees. Mm-hmm. The private ones don't. So we need to, there are no caps right now, how many study visas are being issued by the federal government. Mm -hmm. There are no caps on any institution in the province as to how many international students they can enroll. So the enrollment has gone like it's skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. My calculation is we're looking at about 165 to about 185,000 international students in British Columbia. That high? That high. And when you look at the number of International students at SFU and UBC combined. Yeah, it's only about 3,100. So it's it's the private institutions that are so driving the, this. So the question to ask is, how many international students do our community colleges have? How many students do universities have? And how many students collectively the private institutions have? That is where the biggest problem is, and it's profit-driven, and it's bordering on what I would call economic exploitation of middle-class to blow middle class people who are coming from different countries.
0: My guest is Bar Zahan. We're talking about international students. Uh, give me a call in the open line. What do you think we should be doing? A cap on international students? They do subsidize uh, our domestic students here in British Columbia and across the Canada, Across Canada, but we're also uh, you know, fighting uh, with these very students to find housing. Everybody is competing for that one-bedroom apartment and rents have gone up here in the lower mainland as well. What do you think needs to happen? Give me a call in the open line. We're talking to a uh, He's a director of the Canada-India Education Society. He's worked in the Canada-India corridor in regards to education, nursing, healthcare. We're talking about the huge international student population and the fact that we've become so reliant in regards to subsidizing our post-secondary institutions. Call me on the open line. Uh, let's go to Ryan in Vancouver. Hi, Ryan.
3: Hi, Jazz. I wanted to say, like, first of all, I was uh, on the board of governors at the University of Toronto on and off between 2005 and 2010, which is about when the decision was made. I was there when they made the decision to jack up international tuition.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And for context at the time, an engineering student, international student, was paying about $18,000 um, in, say, 2010, and now they're paying $64,000. Uh, meanwhile, domestic students have gone up by about 60% in the same period. So we 60% versus 250%. I think it's pretty disgusting. It's caused by underfunding by the provincial governments, and to a lesser extent, the federal government.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and we're going to need to pay the bill, pay more taxes if we want to solve this problem. I think we should start with a cap. The, the visas are what controls this, right? Mm-hmm. Or what incense it. But the accreditation is at the provincial level, so I think we need to close the um, the PR route, the expanded PR route mm-hmm. for private institutions, and put a cap on how much that your international tuition can't be more than your domestic grant plus your domestic tuition plus, say, another 50%, Mm -hmm. so that we stop exploiting people uh, who just want a better life and want to get an education.
0: Ryan, thank you for your call. Great ideas. I really appreciate your thoughtful comments. And I think Canadians are... You know, they're, they're decent people. They're generous people. We're not against immigration. Uh, we do need these people. Uh, but the just the, the reliance on the system is what bothers me beyond just, uh, you know, we're, we're exploiting not only, in this case, people mostly from northern India come from a working class family farming. They don't have a lot of money. And somehow we've brought them into this system and are exploiting them for a significant amount of dollars, which I just uh, find reprehensible. Uh, let's go to Gail in Abbotsford. Hi, Gail.
4: Hi, gentlemen. I'm a career coach. Um, very interesting topic. I'm a career coach, and um, the private colleges are just gouging international students and at, at a rate that they're not employable because there's such a language barrier. But I don't know how they get away with being able to charge that much money and, and have teachers, quite honestly, that aren't even qualified to teach a classroom. You just have to have experience, and you can teach the EA program at Vancouver career college. I don't know how they get students. I don't know how they keep their business license. But for me, trying to make these people that have just sort of graduated from these programs and try to get them jobs, they're they're going to be lower in wage. They're not accredited. They don't have transferable credit. So if they wanted to morph into something else, Mm -hmm. in public college, you can go 10 years and then be able to use those credits. But in the public system, you can't thanks th- amount
0: of money. Gail, thanks for your call um, uh, without speaking to any specific private
2: college. in some cases, is it fair to call these things just diploma mills? Yes, they are. They're less than diploma mills because a lot of them offer six month programs, and a lot of the international students coming in now, they get admission for these six month programs. Federal government issues them the study visa. They're here. Many don't even complete the program. And for the second semester, they don't have money. So they are now private money lenders who lend money to international students to buy used cars, to fund their tuition fees, and they're mortgaging their parents' lands back in countries like India. So it seems like it's a huge economic exploitation taking place across the country. When we talk about these private institutions, you know, jazz in Canada, there are 1,627 institutions that are designated learning institutions. That means they're approved to mm-hmm. enroll international students. But only 692 of them, their graduates will get a graduate post, uh, postgraduate work permit. So that means... The other students in the other colleges, they're not going to get a work permit. So that leads to another abuse, which is the whole PR system, how you get that.
0: Man, that's a huge issue. And uh, can you come back uh, maybe next week? We can talk a little bit more about this because I just uh, uh, you can't do this in one or two segments. We got to keep talking about this right. because, the, the, you, you, you know, you step away uh, uh, just to take the cover off this thing. And we've allowed this to happen. And not only just on the policy level, federally and provincially, um, but you see this at the education level as well. I mean, our institutions are strong in regards to the, our, edu- our colleges and our universities. But we somehow have allowed this to continue and I don't know why we've allowed it to continue this, this long uh, and at this level beyond just a crass need for more dollars to subsidize our system when as our first caller said, we just got to pay a bit more money. We have to if we're going to keep this system whole rather than taking care of or taking advantage of of these people from other nations, particularly India Barge. thank you for your time today appreciate it. Thank you. Jeff. I want you to think back to when you were a kid and, uh, you know, uh, leaving the house and going to the corner store to buy some candy is part of uh, growing up. I had a corner store near my place. I didn't grow up in Vancouver. I grew up in the interior, but it was just part of growing up as a kid. In fact, Vancouver peaked uh, in regards to corner stores back in the 1920s. There were about 260 corner stores. And what I mean by that is stores that were actually probably in residential neighbourhoods, not into, into, in, biz, along busy thoroughfares, but along in in, in sort of residential neighbourhoods where, where things are very quiet. Now there are roughly 90 corner stores uh, in the city of Vancouver. So the community is uh, launching public consultation to potentially support and possibly expand corner stores in the Vancouver area. Joining me now to talk a little bit about corner stores is Peter Meisner, council of the city of Vancouver. Uh, Peter, thank you for joining us today.
5: Good afternoon, Jazz. Thanks for your interest.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So tell me why uh, this need for the city or this interest on the the part of the city uh, to to looking at potentially preserving corner stores?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think we've heard loud and clear from Vancouverites that they want more options in their neighbourhoods. So they don't want to have to get in their car to go grab groceries, uh, they want to be able to walk to things in their neighborhood, and they want that neighborhood vibrancy that comes along with these small-scale uh, retail in in neighborhoods. So, as you mentioned, we had a lot of these corner stores 100 years ago, uh, and now we're you know really realizing the value of that. So this is really about expanding uh, those opportunities, allowing them in more areas, mm-hmm. and also allowing different uses beyond just corner grocery stores.
0: Um, you know, and we're living in an era where uh, through a click of a mouse, you can have something delivered to your door from Amazon and many other uh, retailers. Is this uh, something we really need, do you think? Or do you think this is partially nostalgia?
5: I think it's something we need. I mean, Amazon and, you know, online shopping is fast, but this is faster. You know, if you need a... Uh, a liter of milk, you can just walk down the street and grab it if you're if you're fortunate enough to have a corner store in your neighborhood. So this is about really modernizing our bylaws across Vancouver mm-hmm. and allowing uh, these uh, uses in neighborhoods. Right now, there's a, a lot of different regulations around this. Um, some of the regulations stipulate that these stores must have been existing uh, prior to 1980 in order to continue operating, for example. So this engagement will lead to changes that will, will clean this up, like clean some of these outdated bylaws up.
0: But it's, it's, it's safe to say, though, that it's city hall regulation in many cases that, have, uh, that stifled uh, the growth of these or at the very least uh, led to the decline or shutting down of these stores in the past.
5: Yes, I mean, I think there were some poor decisions made in the past, uh, you know, over neighbourhood concerns. Uh, there is a perception uh, among some that uh, any changes to these policies might result in commercial space everywhere in residential areas. And that's, that's really not what we're looking to do. It's really to have corner stores that exist around the city already. So there's some examples in South Kona, Kitsilano, Mount Pleasant mm-hmm. uh, of these, of these neighbourhood corner stores. So it's really allowing those uses uh, as we build new development across Vancouver.
0: I guess it's part of the culture in in many communities. When you think of uh, like New York City, they talk about the bodegas and many other communities. It's sort of part of life, isn't it? It was certainly that, you know, whether it's kids feeling comfortable to walk down to the corner store, grab some money from mom and dad and and buy some candy or whatever it may be. But it has it was at one point, not just a uh, it was a meeting place for folks. Uh, In many cases, there were immigrant communities that set up these stores as well It was part of the culture, wasn't it?
5: Yeah, absolutely, and I think you know it's really like a back to the future moment for uh, for Vancouver. So uh, I think it makes me think of streetcars and the fact that you know we used to have streetcars all over Vancouver. There was uh, tons of streetcar routes up and down uh, major arterials in Vancouver. And I think like what you know would be so great if we still had those streetcar networks. Same with these corner stores. It's almost like we're going back in time to, to to things that really worked about neighborhoods, and that's those mixed neighborhoods where it's not just housing and only housing where it's a neighbourhood where you can get your needs met you know walking down the street to go to a corner store for example mm-hmm. or walking down the street to get your hair cut so it's creating walkable communities and also interesting and vibrant communities
0: so could we see and, and I'm not asking you know as you said earlier th- this is not about having massive commercial uh, uh, neighbourhoods now our neighbourhoods residential neighbourhoods changing to some you know massive sort of strip malls coming in but could we see this expanded potentially for as you say a barber shop or whatever it may be if you more stores in some of these residential areas, or is it specific to to corner stores?
5: No, so that that is the intention uh, behind the the policy changes that uh, we're seeking engagement on. So right now, there are currently some corner stores around Vancouver that offer uh, specialty products or services like a hair salon, a garden shop. Uh, Some of them are cafes and small bistros. So those corner stores are grandfathered right now under older rules, but legally, uh, they're considered non-conforming. So that means they don't comply with the current zoning. So if they were to close, for example, they wouldn't be able to reopen under the current zoning. So this is about changing that. So it's not it's expanding the uses, but also modernizing the bylaws. So we have less barriers uh, to having these sorts of businesses around the city.
0: So right now, residents are being asked to to, to contact the city through their website and give give their thoughts on what they think uh, some of these neighborhoods should look like, particularly and and in regards to zone zoning and what kind of rules you want in and around corner stores.
5: Exactly. So uh, people can go to shapeyourcity.ca and uh, participate in the public engagement until October 10th. And we'd love to hear what they think, what they like about it, what some of their concerns might be uh, as staff work to shape this policy uh, to come back to council in order to make these policy changes.
0: Peter, thanks for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful weekend.
5: Thanks, Jaz. You too.
0: Today in the Vancouver Sun reporter Kim Bolin had a very interesting story um, she was able to obtain a 123 page report that was commissioned by the BC Public Safety. Ministry. Now, the ministry uh, was looking at uh, BC's anti gang agency and whether or not it was effective. In this case, reports report showed that it was ineffective in tackling escalating um, a drug war. Um, the anti gang agency was failing to stem a gang war that, that had resulted in dozens of murders and public shootings over a two year period, according to the report. Now, the report looked at uh, gang violence in the period between December. Uh, 2020 to march 2022 joining me now to talk a little bit about this particular report and its comments essentially that uh, the anti-gang agency here in our province is ineffective joining me now is cash heat he's a former west vancouver police chief he's also the former bc solicitor general and currently a richmond city councillor cash thank you for joining us Good afternoon, Jazz. Good afternoon. So, uh, your thoughts just in regards to this headline first and foremost that our anti-gang agency is ineffective it's in this case specifically looking at a gang war between December 2020 of March and March 2022.
6: Well, I think the CFSU problem has originated back when it, it was in, in its inception in 2002, where it actually took over the Organized Crime Agency. If you recall back mm-hmm. then, I believe you were reporting on a lot of that, where the Organized Crime Agency was created to deal with those higher-level uh, gangsters, higher-level agencies uh, that were involved in this type of behavior in individuals. However, it was taken over uh, by CFSU in 2002, and they based it on some of the funding models so they could get it out of the provincial policing budget. But that $90 million, which is spent every year, and according to the report, is uh, is not an adequate return on the investment. Those of us that have been following the perpetuating gang issue here in British Columbia over the last three decades have realized that we still do not have the comprehensive response required. I worked with the uh, leaders of the organized crime agency and they understood what was uh, needed to deal with this particular problem they were working towards it however when the RCMP leadership came in Mm -hmm. we came into that bureaucratic inertia which is quite prevalent within that agency where it's more interested in process rather than being outcome based.
0: So is this case just too many organizations who have been asked to work together, but just a thicket of bureaucracy and and, and just not uh, working as efficiently as they possibly need to
6: no, and they won 't based on the uh, systems that have been created within there, based on the leadership model that they've put in place within there, and based on the accountability to their uh, board which is appointed by, for example, uh, by the uh, police services division and they have the head of the RCMP on it, they have the head of the Vancouver Police Department on it. They have those type of individuals on that which are really not going to be critical Or deal with some of the proper governance that's required for a standalone crime agency, whether they're going to focus on organized crime or even on the lower level gang issue that uh, leads to the violence that's taking place not only in Metro Vancouver, but all over British Columbia. That's not even looking at the major drug issue that we're dealing with and the proceeds of crime that are utilized into our system.
0: So right now, uh, uh, it, in the report said there, there was a t- complicated tangle of organizations, including the RCMP Municipal Police Forces and the Organized Crime Agency of BC. In your mind, the perfect world, and it's always very difficult in in any large organization, but we need a provincially funded standalone agency that can deal with these issues. Is Is that what would be the response to this in the perfect world?
6: Absolutely, because the balkanized system we have, and for example, of what we're talking about right now, does not work. You've got to remember, as you've indicated, many are seconded from municipal agencies, which they are really accountable for. You've got the RCMP, and then you've got the other organized crime agency people, and they're really unsure what their leadership model is. But when you've got the third largest police agency here in British Columbia that comes out and by qualified people uh, Mike Portius uh Kurt Griffiths and Yvonne Durandaran criticizing them to the extent of showing how inefficient and ineffective they are, it's very, very concerning to people in British Columbia. But what I would like to see is some responsibility and accountability taken here, and it has to go back, and as you're aware of, to government, because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are funding this particular agency, and if they're not meeting the needs of what the people of B.C. need, Mm -hmm. uh, then we've got to look at something different. But you're 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 very key on the balkanized process we have in place right now versus a standalone, like it was intended to be under the Organized Crime Agency, a standalone agency tackling these significant issues.
0: I recall, and uh, I don't want to broadly generalize about any organization, there's lots of good people in them, even in, in the 90s. I think there was something called CLU or Coordinated yes. Law Enforcement uh, Unit, uh, and there's some good people in there, but it was also commonly known among police and probably crime reporters like myself that you know they weren't always sending their best talent uh, to that organization and to one point I think one officer around me referred to it as without a clue and I'm, like I said I don't want to broadly generalize about officers and the hard working people there um, but it did go back to once again taking officers from different organizations and putting them in this organization uh, to, to deal with the issue and I think after that OCA had come. Um, is that still the challenge you think? Do you, do you think police departments at a municipal level or the RCM whatever it may be, their state must be hesitant in sending some of their best and brightest because they want to use them locally rather than putting them into organizations like this.
6: Well, it's not as bad, if I can use that term, as when the Coordinated Law Enforcement Unit was in place. And they did a lot of good work. They Mm -hmm. had a lot of uh, good investigations. So I agree with you, the men and women at the lower rank, they're really getting uh, their self immersed into this type of uh... culture and dealing with organized crime however the lack of structure, the lack of proper leadership within the organization. And the report was critical, saying that there are issues with CFSU's leadership and senior management model, including high rates of turnover. So when you have that occurring at the higher levels, it's going to affect the people lower down. So you don't get the effectiveness that you really need at that level. But, I've no, you know, I've looked at some of the people and know some of the people that have worked very, very hard and including, uh, you know, Mike Porteous and others, to make sure CFSAU is successful. But for some reason, Jazz, the system does not allow it to move to the level which it's expected to go to. And I think that's based on people looking at their own career development versus looking at doing the service. As the way it's required.
0: I don't want to turn this into a three police service conversation. We'll, we'll move to that next week sometime. I think I've been away from that a little while. But ultimately, the SPS conversation versus the RCMP still goes back to uh, a Metro Vancouver police force or a provincial police force until we solve that conversation, that issue, this issue about gangs and how we, uh, and an and, and, uh, anti gang agency can't be solved. Is that fair comment in your mind? It's the bigger picture. How do we police ourselves with, instead of these 21 municipalities, 21 forces, whatever it may be, until we deal with that issue and figure that out, we can't figure out this gang issue?
6: You're exactly right. Uh, until we determine the uh, best police model for British Columbia, which I believe is a provincial police agency followed with three metro-style police agency and uh, rural police done by the Provincial Police Service. So until we're able to do that, until we're able to move homicides, for example, to one unit where we don't have this divisive nature taking place within police organizations, until we're able to move gang suppression to that point, organized crime, white-collar crime, all of those issues to one agency where you have one person you could hold accountable to deal with it, we are going to have these ongoing issues like we've talked about, whether it's CLUE, whether it's uh, OCA, whether it's CFSU or our balkanized systems just to live, deliver community policing throughout Metro Vancouver.
0: Cash, thank you for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful weekend.
6: You too, Jeff. Thank you.